right, welcome to day 182 of Journey Through Scripture. Okay, so today we are going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 37, and then Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 26. Okay, so in chapter 3 of 2 Kings, we read that in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. Uh, Jehoram, as I mentioned, is the brother of his predecessor, Ahaziah, who um, had an untimely death, uh, presumably due uh, tracing back to the accident that he had um, and never recovered from. He had a short reign of only two years. And not surprisingly, Jehoram, being of the house of Ahab, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, um, although not like his father and mother. And how was he different? Well, because he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Um, it appears to be that there is um, a movement away from this official worship of Baal in the northern kingdom during his time. Uh, which, of course, is somewhat of an improvement. But nevertheless, um, there is, uh, he, he continues to pursue the sin of Jeroboam, which is worship at the, tribe, at the shrines at Dan and Bethel, as opposed to where the Lord has chosen to be worshipped in Jerusalem. So there is a step in the right direction, to be sure, but there's still, it's still not enough for him to receive an evaluation other than having done evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now, the circumstance that happens uh, that we're dealing with here in chapter 3 is that uh, the king of Moab is a guy named Mesha, and he is, we are told, a sheep breeder, and he is in um, some kind of subservient relationship to Israel. Uh, he, he's required to pay tribute or tax uh, annually of a large number of lambs, a hundred thousand of them, and then the wool of a hundred thousand rams. So this is a pretty enormous tribute that is levied on him. And um, I guess this is the time to mention that one of the more interesting archaeological discoveries um, of, I don't even want to call it recent years, um, because it was made over a hundred years ago, is what is called the Mesha Stella or perhaps the, the Moabite stone, you might hear it called. And this is a monument that was actually erected by Mesha himself. It was found in Debon, Jordan in 1868, and it is in Moabite, and it speaks about the events that this chapter speaks about. Of course, it's from Mesha's perspective. It is royal propaganda, so a lot of the things it says have to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt, but it does give us some very helpful things, uh, such as being the first unambiguous reference to the God of Israel by name, Yahweh, outside of the Bible. Uh, it also mentions uh, David's name as well, so it's one of the other early attestations of David outside of the Bible, um, the other one uh, being the Aramaic Tel Dan inscription. You can look these up online if you'd like. Um, but in the inscription, Mesha says claims that he has uh, that he's been in this tributary relationship with the house of Omri ever since the reign of Omri. So this starts 
several generations before Jehoram, and um, that um, during the time of Omri's quote-unquote son, he threw off this yoke and rebelled against Israel, the Israelite kings, the house of Omri. And um, he, he calls uh, he says he did this during the reign of his of Omri's son. Now, of course, Omri's son is Ahab. Jehoram is his grandson, but this word son can denote that kind of relationship as well. It's his, his fairly recent descendant, we might say. And it says that this op- oppression lasted um, Omri's time, and then it said half of his, again, quote-unquote, son's time, 40 years and what's interesting is that if you go from Omri's reign through Ahab's, through Ahaziah's short reign, down through half of Jehoram's reign, you get 38 and a half years. So that's a pretty good correspondence right there. Obviously, 40 is a very round number, often used um, that way. And so, yeah, um, it's uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and we... Um, We'll go back to this in a uh, in a in a little bit. I think it has a few in, more insights to give us. But you can read the whole thing online if you're interested. Um, so he rebels against uh, Mesha, that is, rebels against Jehoram, against the northern kingdom, and Jehoram um, goes to put down this rebellion. And it says he mustered all Israel, and he also. Um, sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And you might remember that earlier in his reign, Jehoshaphat had also helped King Ahab with uh, the battle at remote Gilead. This is the battle where Ahab was killed in 1 Kings 22. And so um, maybe not everybody would characterize it this way, but some certainly have speculated that Israel was actually a vassal, or sorry, Judah was actually a vassal to Israel uh, during this time, which appears to have continued um, past Jehoshaphat's um, reign through the reign of his son and his son's successor, as well as Queen Athaliah, who we will meet in a few um, in, in, in a few days here. Um, in, in fact, there's actually not a whole lot of time in Judah's history during which the uh, northern kingdom is still in existence where there does not appear to have been some kind of vassalage. Uh, in fact, um, even after then, Judah is a vassal to Egypt, then to Babylon. There's very few years in Judah's history when they're actually independent. And um, that's, uh, I just think, an important perspective to have, um, keeping in mind that Judah, compared to a lot of their, her neighbors, is a fairly weak state politically. So, at any rate... Um, Jehoram successfully ropes Jehoshaphat into helping him quell this rebellion, and um, and then uh, they also enlist the help of a of an unnamed king of Edom, who uh, we might assume is in a similar relationship to the, the more powerful uh, northern kingdom of Israel. So you kind of get the picture. Israel has really exerted control over its neighbors, uh, over Judah over Moab, over Edom. And so they go and they find themselves in the area of Edom uh, in a very difficult situation. They, there's, there's no water. And uh, in particular, um, not only is the army in danger, but the animals that are, have been brought in order to sustain the army are in danger. They, they need water too. And so uh, the king of Israel uh, sees this 
that there's not water where he expects there to be water and interprets this as Yahweh having called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab, which of course is a little bit, um, uh, there's a little bit of lack of self-awareness here, right? Who's the one who called these three kings? If they're in danger, it's because of you. And Jehoshaphat, uh, being a, a pretty good king, has the idea to actually seek a prophet of Yahweh. And Elisha happens to be there. And so Jehoshaphat um, is all about this. The word of the Lord is with him. The word of Yahweh is with him. And so uh, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom go down to him. And when they get there, Elisha has no problem rebuking Jehoram. What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And he goes on, as Yahweh of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But Jehoshaphat is there, and so he agrees to inquire of Yahweh. And he does it, interestingly, through music. He has a musician brought to him, and as the musician plays, the hand of Yahweh comes upon him. I'm not aware of another time where music is explicitly connected to prophecy in the Old Testament, but it certainly is interesting that it is here. And uh, the Lord comes to him and says, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. Um, you, you're not going to see wind or rain. It's just that the steam bed will be filled with water so that you, your livestock and your animals shall drink. Um, and this is not a big deal. For Yahweh. It is a light thing in his sight. Also, they're told, he will give the Moabites into your hand. So ultimately, they will have victory, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And so he is going to give them a sort of victory here, and it's going to be you know, this is going to be a big battle. There's going to be a lot of the, the terrible things that happen during battles, um, but they're going to have success in this. And just to, uh, again, drop a little bit of historical context into here, um, we have to keep in mind what Mesha has been doing. And we're interestingly, we're not told that in the biblical text, but in the Mesha inscription, he mentions... Uh, how he reclaimed some of these cities. So, for example, he he says, uh, now the Gadite had settled in the land of Atarot from antiquity, and the king of Israel had fortified for himself Atarot. But I fought against the town, and I took it, and I slew all the people. And then he goes on, um, and he says that his god Chemosh whom we've seen in the Bible, that is the Moabite uh, deity that who's mentioned in the Bible. Chemosh said to me, go seize Nebo from Israel. So I went by night and I fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, and I took it and I put all to death, 7,000 native men and foreign men and boys, besides native women and foreign women and girls, and including pregnant women, 
because to Ashtar Chemosh I had dedicated it. And that right there at the end is the biblical expression, cherem, the, the dedicate to the ban, the, the devote to destruction. Okay, So this is the kind of thing that Mesha has been up to, and this is the kind of thing that it's go here now that we read about in Second Kings that it's going to take to put an end to this. So uh, the Moabites hear about this, and, uh, and they... Um, uh, they decide to attack this invading army. All who are able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest are called out, drawn up to the border. And they see the, the sun shining on the water in the morning, and they think it's blood. And what they think is that, okay, the Israelites and the Judeans and the Edomites have turned against one another and they've slain one another. So let's go and plunder, uh, collect the plunder of what's left over. And so when they get down there, they realize that that's not, in fact, what happened and uh, what has happened. And um, the Israelite coalition is, uh, is uh, successfully defeats them um, and then pursues them. And uh, they, they do a lot of what the Lord had said they would do. And Mesha eventually becomes so desperate that it, we're told that he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place after him, so his heir— and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. So he engaged in human sacrifice of his own son in order to, to rouse his god, well, apparently his god, Chemosh. And the way that this narrative ends is kind of difficult to make out what exactly is going on. Right after it tells us that he sacrificed his own son, it says, there came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, a couple there's a couple things that make this difficult. One of which is that wrath is not the usual word for wrath. It could also mean fury, and it's difficult to know is this divine fury? Is this from God? Um, is it is the uh, uh, Moabite army somehow uh, reinvigorated at this point? It's difficult to know exactly what's going on, but it does end up with um, Jehoram not, not doing what he set out to do. So they do indeed wreak a lot of havoc in Moab like the Lord said that they would, and yet this king's goals are not ultimately um, accomplished and Israel is repelled from Moab. Then in chapter 4, we get a focus on Elisha, so a lot less militaristic to say the least. And Recall that when Elisha had formally become the prophet, when he was walking with Elijah and they went from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho across the Jordan, and then uh, Elisha comes back alone, the idea is that, um, is that the spiritual endowment that Elijah had would now be his successors. In fact, what Elisha had asked for was a double portion of the spirit to rest on him. And so now we are going to see some of that coming to fruition. So uh, the first thing that happens is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets uh, has become a widow, and she comes to Elisha and uh, tells him about how her husband has died. And they have two children, and apparently this prophet who, who died had died with um, some debt. And now, in order to pay off that debt, that is a, it, it's come to the point where she's concerned that the creditor will come and take her two children, her two sons, to be um, 
essentially debt slaves, as we've seen. This is a way of dealing with debt in Israel. And so Elisha um, does something about this. He goes uh, to her house, and though she is poor and destitute, right, they're, they're at the point where they're just borrowing food at this point, she has um, a jar of oil. And so he goes and he tells her to um, borrow vessels from their neighbors, um, a lot of them, empty vessels, not too few, as it, as it says, and shut yourself behind, uh, shut the door behind you and your sons and start pouring oil into the vessels. And she starts to do this and she's able to fill all of the vessels with oil. So obviously a miracle here has happened. And she is able to take that and with that, pay off of pay off her debt and then live off of apparently selling this oil um, and does not enter into this state of destitution where she is now a widow. Her sons have been set um, sold off to debt slavery and now has no way to support herself. And so that's the first act, miraculous act of Elisha, this act of mercy on this this woman. Now, this, of course, corresponds to uh, 1 Kings 17, where Elijah had taken care of the, the widow of Zarephath as well as uh, her, her boy. But one thing that Elijah had done that Elisha has not yet done is raise the dead. And so what happens is Elisha develops this relationship with a family from Shunem, which is an Israelite city in uh, the territory of Issachar. And um, here, instead of having this woman who's essentially uh, completely broke, here we have a wealthy woman who lives there. And any time that Elisha is in the area, she's the one who takes him in, provides for him. She even gives him a room to stay in with a bed, table, chair, and a lamp. And Elisha wants to do good for her. And so here we're also introduced to his servant, this guy named Gehazi, and we'll see a little bit uh, more of Gehazi's doings in the next few days. Um, but he has, uh, Gehazi kind of turns into a kind of spokesperson for Elisha. And so he, through Gehazi, um, asks her, uh, what shall I do for you? Um, you've done all this for me. Um, do you want to have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army, right? I've got an in with these people. And she's like, no, I'm good. But the issue, of course, in her household that Elisha is aware of is that she has no son. And so he proclaims something that sounds very Genesis-y. He says, uh, at this season, about this, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son, and she, like Sarah did when it was announced to her, finds it very difficult to believe because although she's married, she apparently is pretty advanced in years. Um, but lo and behold, she conceived and bore a son that following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And keep in mind, what, what we're seeing here is a, uh, some steps forward from the uh, the power of the, the signs of these two prophets were uh he certainly is doing things that Elijah did, but now even more so. And this would be one prominent example of something that is added in the ministry of Elisha. But when the child grows, um, grows, grows up, he's with his father among the reapers in the field and starts complaining about his head and is brought into the house to his mother and 
um, but, but eventually succumbs to whatever it is is going on, and he dies. And so she decides to go and get Elisha, to go fetch Elisha. Uh, Elisha is uh, at Carmel, which was, of course, the mountain where Elijah called down fire um, and in, in the contest with the prophets of, of Baal. And she arrives, and, and Gehazi tries to welcome her uh, and asks, is all well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she just, everything's fine because she wants to get to talk to the prophet. So she goes, and as soon as she sees Elisha, she lays hold of his feet. Gehazi tries to push her away, but it's obvious that she is in distress. And so, uh, and so Elisha questions her about what has happened, and she, of course, is grieved and bereft, and so, um, uh, and so, so uh, she says to him, "Did I ask my lord for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? Like, is this some kind of like cruel joke where the Lord has given me a son just to take take him away again? I, I told you I'm childless, and here I am childless again." And so Elisha sends Gehazi with this woman back to Shunem. And he goes and uh, at first attempts to lay Elisha's staff on the boy's dead body. And when this doesn't work, he goes back to Carmel and tells Elijah, Elisha that, that that didn't work and the child has not awakened. And so Elisha himself comes and he sees the child lying dead on his bed. And if you just picture this scene, right, like you've had – so the distance between Shunem and Carmel is um, – a little difficult to make out. I I would put it at about 20 miles on the maps that I've looked at. Um, that's at least a day's journey. And you've now had um, four journeys between these two cities, right? The, from Shunem to Carmel, from Carmel to Shunem, and then once again from Shunem to Carmel and Carmel to Shunem. So this young man has been dead now for at least four days, okay? His body is probably bloating by now, uh, blood perhaps leaking from his mouth, his nose. Uh, bugs would be um, aiding in the process of decomposition. His body is starting to actively decay. And he comes in and he finds this child and he shuts the door um, and he goes up and he lays on this child putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And the flesh begins to become warm. And so Elisha gets up, he walks around and then goes back up to the room and once again stretches himself out on, on top of him. And then it, it seems weird, but of course prophecy and some miraculous signs are weird and they don't fit into the boxes that we put them in. But he does this and the child sneezes seven times and then opens his eyes. And um, <clears throat> Elisha has Gehazi bring in the Shunammite woman and he presents her son to him alive, tells him, pick up your son. And she falls at Elisha's feet and um, has her son restored to her. Okay, let's go over now to Acts chapter 21. We're in verses 1 through 26. Paul is now um, in earnest, making, attempting to get back to Jerusalem. And so, once again, joining with Paul, apparently, with these we passages. He talks about how we parted from them, that is, from Miletus, the Ephesian elders being there. 
and sent, set sail, made a straight uh, course to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And he gives us all these details. Again, details that are very eyewitnessy. They're the kinds of unnecessary extras that are very difficult to account for if someone's like just making this stuff up. So this has like a real ring of authenticity here. Um, uh, they, they eventually make it their way to Tyre, where they stay with some disciples there for seven days. Um, and it says that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul to not to go on to Jerusalem. So they have some kind of they have insight about the kinds of things that Paul has insight about. It's essentially the same thing that, as he told the Ephesian elders, that in, in every city, suffering awaits him. And they don't want this for him. Um, but, uh, but Paul is, is intent on getting there. He's, he's as, as I said yesterday, from his letters, we know he's been making a collection for the Jewish saints in Jerusalem as a sign of, of universal Christian fellowship. And so... Um, they just like the um, the Ephesian elders, they kneel down, pray, and say farewell. So then they go and and they they make it to the port of Caesarea, where of course they've been. Um, that that's where they're going to then make the inland trip to Jerusalem, and there they enter the house of Philip the Evangelist. So this is the guy from chapter eight who had um, evangelized several of the Samar Samarian cities, as well as led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And it's interesting that uh, after that happens, he it tells us back in chapter 8 that he passed through um, the, that region preaching the gospel in all the towns, it says, until he came to Caesarea, where he stopped. So he's living, whether he's from there originally or whether he's... Uh, um, he, he took up residence there only in chapter 8. It's unclear, but that's where he left off, and that's where he's found now. And he's got four unmarried daughters who are prophesying. As, and as well, they're, named, they're joined by Agabus, who was the prophet from back in chapter 11, verse 28, who had foreseen the famine that would happen in Jerusalem. And he comes down. And they're all prophesying to Paul, um, making it very clear what will that that something, some kind of severe trial awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. And Agabus is so specific as to actually take Paul's belt and bind his hands and feet with it, and then say, "Thus says the Holy Spirit: This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And um, and so again, the, the the people there are urging him. In fact, we is used there in verse twelve. We are urging him. We're urging him. Luke, including himself, uh, but Paul, resolute in doing what he believes the Lord wants him to do. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, um, they all resolve. Let the will of the Lord be done. Um, which, of course, is interesting in and of itself, because Paul is not seeing what he knows to be difficulty on the horizon as an indication that God wants him to stop, that God wants him to change his plans and, and abandon the ministry that he's laid on his heart now for so long. Um, he doesn't interpret that even that kind of hardship, even that degree of hardship, as something that is determinative as God's will. Like, just because something is going to be hard or difficult doesn't mean that God wants you, uh, that God doesn't want you to do it. 
So he gets to Jerusalem, and uh, when he's in Jerusalem, the brothers receive him gladly along with his companions, and uh, he goes in to be with James and the elders who are present, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. This is James, the brother of Jesus, um, as opposed to James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, who had been killed by Herod. Um, James, for all we can tell, is kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he relates what the Lord has done through his ministry, with especially among the Gentiles, and they are thankful. But they're also aware of this situation now that's looming, because word has gotten around that the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem. And uh, there are um, their concern actually is not with the unbelieving Jewish people, at least here, but it's with the believers who are Jewish. Um, and there's a lot of rumors going on, going around about the kinds of things that Paul teaches. And as you can imagine, maybe some exaggerations and distortions of his points on, on theology. And one of them is that these Jewish believers here, and these are exactly the kind of people that he's trying to reach with the offering that he's brought to Jerusalem, right? Like to show we're all on your side. We're, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And these Gentile believers, they love you. They love you in the name of Christ. And I love you in the name of Christ. And we are happy to give out of our poverty to help you and to show that so that you can know that um, through Jesus, what is ours is yours. So these believers, however, are suspicious of Paul believing that he teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk uh, according to our customs. And um, this is might be an interesting piece, part of adjustment to our own theology, right? Because the answer is not, well, tell them to get over it or tell them to read the book of Galatians, Right. There's no indication that these guys are upset because they think these things are requirements for salvation. Their issue is, th is that they think they have some kind of misunderstanding of Paul's theology that Christianity, Christianity is somehow antithetical to Judaism, that you can't be um, a Jewish person um, if you're going to become a Christian, uh, that the things that you're convic convinced that the, the Lord wants you to do, even circumcision, right? Paul's bone to pick with circumcision, as we will see in the book of Galatians, is not that no Christian anywhere can undergo it. Indeed, Timothy has undergone it. Paul's problem with circumcision and for, quote-unquote, the works of the law in general is not that they're bad and Christians don't need to do them, but it's that it's when they're placed— um, it's when they're made a requirement of salvation, when they— when when we distort the gospel to say that this is what that obedience to these things are what makes you a child of God, what places you into right relation with God, you need to have your head on straight with that, that it is justification by faith that does that. And these things become dangerous when they are made an additional requirements for that, for becoming a, a genuine part of the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean that they have no place in the Christian life, especially in the Jewish Christian life. Um, as long as the understanding of the gospel is correct, and precisely because it is correct, the church should be able to accommodate Jews living as Jews and Gentiles living as Gentiles. 
Um, so uh, what James suggests to Paul is, look, we've got a couple guys who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses, do these very Jewish things, and you know, and pay for them so that they can do this very Jewish thing. So not only are you going to be doing a very Jewish thing, but you're going to be the one footing the bill for other people to do it as well. Um, so that they may go and shave their heads. And uh, we ran into this in chapter 18, verse 18. This appears to be some sort of Nazarite vow that um, uh, that Paul himself had been, uh, been under, but these guys are under the same kind of thing. Um, it seems one of the, one of the things that, um, that, that is a little bit puzzling is that Paul is not enjoined to shave his head here as well, which would indicate that whatever vow he was under back in chapter 18 has been completed, right? He's just going and um, and in basically sponsoring these these guys uh, to go and do this. So that's what that's what they're that's what they're going to do. The reason being, thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. So that that this idea that you don't live in observance to the law and you just teach other people to forsake the law of Moses, that they might know that this is a distortion. This is not what the true Paul teaches or thinks. Um, and um, he even mentions the letter in Jerusalem, right? As for the Gentiles, we've already made uh, made our determination on, on what quote unquote Jewish things they're going to be expected to do, and um, yeah, and we should be able to live in harmony with one another. So let's have this tangible symbol of that. Go to the temple, uh, take care of these guys, participate in what are what's going on there, and show them that your Christianity is totally compatible with Judaism. And so it says that Paul does this. He took the men. The next day he purified himself, went into the temple, and did just what James had requested of him. What happens next? Well, we'll have to find out tomorrow. But until then, as always, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.